Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Carolyn Barkley, a strategy-first copywriter based in Melbourne. Carolyn is hell-bent on helping brands sound like actual humans instead of soulless robots sent from the future to bore us to death. She's also bossing it up as co-founder of Kingswood and Palmerston, a creative consultancy dedicated to solving marketing puzzles for B2B and making ads for ad agencies. Carolyn says, unless you're a fat and happy category leader, you literally can't afford to blend in. Big brands have the budget to bury you under a mountain of content until no one can hear you scream. Welcome to the show, Carolyn. Hello, Giles. How are you doing? Yeah, good. You? Yeah, I'm awesome. <laughs> good stuff. Right, we've got our seven quickfire questions, Carolyn. Number one, a Gmail or Hotmail? Hotmail. It's coming back. It's going to be cool again. <laughs> you love Hotmail. I do. Joni Mitchell or Bob Dylan? Oh, Joni Mitchell. Snoop Dogg or Elroy the Cat? Elroy the Cat. <laughs> Has to be. <laughs> Melbourne or Canberra? Melbourne, because Canberra's a hole. I was hoping you'd say that. Uh, sing or write? Singing for sure. Yeah, I know I'm good at that, whereas the writing makes me, I'm not quite as sure of myself, even though that's what I now do, but there you go. <laughs> Yeah, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on both those things then. Um, two more, stealing pens or shrinking jumpers? Oh, see, that's a hard one because I'm good at both. But I'm, go, I'm going to go with stealing pens because it's a much more marketable skill. Let's go with that. <laughs> and last one, advertise yourself or do the client work? Advertising yourself, that's got to be, it's more fun, isn't it? <laughs> it is more fun. It's a conundrum though, isn't it? And a common problem. You guys should know you're doing a great job of that. Loving it. Well, we're, yeah, well, we're trying. I, I think I think probably it stands out because so few seem to do it. Well, I think I think you'd find even so, it's a cut above. I'm we're very big fans of what you do. <laughs> thanks, Carolyn. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We always start the show by celebrating weird and wonderful ways our guests have ended up where they currently are. So you've already given a hint to singing and songwriting I know is part of your journey um, and very few copywriters we've spoken to seem to have a linear path which I think just makes them more interesting so could you tell our listeners what was your first ever job and then what was your first kind of proper copywriting role sure sure so I'm sort of going to cheat and say two for my first ever job because the very first time I ever got paid was actually singing at my primary school teacher's um, daughter's wedding. And I got to, I sang Amazing Grace and I got paid $10. And I was very enchanted with the whole, you know, exchanging your skills for money. And I don't think that ever left me. So I think that's kind of, it's important to put that out there. So that I think that played into my confidence in terms of going freelancing. That's a thing. But 
in terms of my first like uni job, I was a sales assistant in a cut price menswear store called Lowe's, which anyone from the whole that is Canberra will know what I'm talking about. Um, it's a bit of an institution there, but uh, I learned a lot about sales in that role. So I think I wrote a piece about this actually, but I used to spend the weekends in the suit department because we got $10 for every suit that we, um, we sold. So that was a pretty attractive thing for a uni student. And I had this whole routine that I would do every weekend. I'd park myself just near the suits, wait for someone to look super lost and then just like pounce and I'd do my thing. Um, but we were, had this really shitty um, sales pitch that we were given to do, which was basically it's $99 for a suit. For that price, you could either hire one or you can keep it and buy one here. And it's like, okay, yeah get what you're saying but it occurred to me after a while that the people that would shop in the store didn't want to own a suit and herein lies the problem they didn't want to wear a suit they didn't want to be near a suit no nothing to do with a suit so a lot of people came in really shopping for an occasion usually their wedding to attend one or their own and I think I quickly came to understand that if I got them to try it on that was kind of the whole deal because once they saw themselves in the suit, they were able to conceptualize themselves as someone who might look okay in a suit. Cause like I always say, every guy looks good in a suit, even a shitty one that you wouldn't want to stand too close to an open flame in. <laughs> so I had this whole routine where I was like, it was like, I'd make it into a makeover show. I'd be grabbing a shirt. I'd be grabbing, I get in trouble all the time for unpacking the shirts, but I was like, well, I'm selling the suit. So, you know, it works grab a tie you know, all this the whole thing get them to tie the whole thing on and I just used to love what they put the suit on they come out and they do this little thing where they'd stand back on one heel and I was like got it that's sold is that is that what it was standing back on one heel they just they people take this little step back and it's like they just sort of relax into it it's like yep they're seeing themselves and they're either seeing themselves standing next to their, you know, partner at the wedding or they're seeing themselves standing at the at the altar waiting for it or walk down the aisle and they're just loving themselves sick. And you're like, yep, I don't have to do anything else. We're done here. So, so, so your job was just to get them in the suit then, yeah, and then the absolutely. rest just took care of itself. Absolutely. Easiest $10 you'll ever make, apart from singing Amazing Grace. Apart from singing, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's $10 again. Yeah, it's a magic number. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, I've definitely been firmly in that segment of guys who don't particularly like wearing suits. More than one of them use the words straight jacket. So that was probably one of my clues, yeah, that they didn't really like them and didn't didn't see space one in their closet, I guess. Yeah. And how long were you doing that for? I was probably there for uh, probably two years, I'd say. And I almost forgot to leave because once I got my real, real job I kept working their weekends and at one point my manager's like you're working seven days a week I was like oh yeah I don't have to do that <laughs> I just sort of forgot to leave so he almost had to fire me but anyway how many suits did you sell in a day what was your what was your record you know I think the best I did was six and that doesn't sound like a lot but not that many people come in to buy a suit at Lowe's because it's basically organized polyester it's not like it's a great it's not a great suit you know yeah it's not yeah. Savile Row that's it. <laughs> nice. Oh, it's good. Good job, though. And what were you studying at uni at the time? I was studying marketing and advertising. My first role in marketing ended up being in product line control for Avon, 
and it was not what I had imagined or had in mind. I had already decided I wanted to be a copywriter in an advertising agency, which is hard to do from Canberra. I think we had one or two advertising agencies there at the time that would be, you know, you'd have heard of them or knew they were even there. And I didn't want to live there anymore. So I was sort of trying to get into the Sydney um, crowd. But the thing is, the thing about advertising, I don't know if this has even changed, but you get an advertising degree and no one actually ever told me I need a book. No one ever told me how to get into advertising. So it really just felt like I was just like a cat scratching at a glass door. Like I'm just not getting anywhere. And I had no idea how to get in. So, you know, the obvious thing to do is to apply for a job where you write a cover letter and that's marketing. You know, that was, that was the way into that. And that job at Avon, I found really depressing because it wasn't even marketing in terms like you sort of like we think of 1P marketing now. It's like, no, nah. product, product, product like control is very much about um, managing stock levels. So it was my job to organize the bargain bin catalog and I had a sales target I had to meet and I would have to figure out how many units of, I think I used the example recently of a dancing singing in the rain bear because they you know it sold really well one year and then no one wanted one ever again for obvious reasons um so how much did I have to price that at to move a certain amount of stock but also reach my sales targets for that catalog so this is not what I had envisaged myself doing (laughs) in a marketing career so I was very very depressed but I actually came to um I came to really value those skills uh, ultimately, because I think it did give, did give me a good start. And then I moved into more generalist marketing roles after that. So I bring all of that in my little suitcase with me into my copywriting um, career that I've sort of carved out my, for myself now. So um, I think, yeah, I think it's valuable. And I, um, I, do want to, I do want to move past that kind of early stage. But I also do want, before we do that, I want to ask more about the singing. So, I mean, I mean, I say this, you'll be surprised to hear I've never been paid to sing, but presumably at 11, being paid to sing, does that not ignite something? That Surely there was, a, there was something else going on on the side during this job at Lowe's and university and so on and so forth. Absolutely. I, I could sing before I could talk. I was in my pram at Christmas time and my mum was in a shop and I was apparently singing along to Jingle Bells, just sort of da-da-da. And the mum turned to my, the lady turned to my mum and said, that baby's singing. And I really never stopped. It was just, it was easy as breathing for me. So it was just always part of my life. Performing was part of my life. And I, you know, talking about how songwriting has impacted that. I mean, the performance side as much as anything, because my mum was a folk singer as well. She, she performed in Melbourne in, you know, quite significant venues during the, the 60s and 70s. And she always taught me, you show up for an audience and you're not, they're not there to see you. And that's the same with my writing. They're not there to read what I've written. I'm, I'm there to help them experience an emotion that they want to experience. So I think that impacted me as much as anything um, in terms of the songwriting. But, um, yeah, so that was always something that I was working on in the background. And is that, do you think that's partly why you... Because obviously marketing and advertising degrees are, are by design quite broad, typically. It gives you exposure of all sides and all directions. But do you think that's why you 
fell into copywriting? I say fell into, I mean, it's all part of the same industry. But was it that, was it that use of, of words and language and emotion, as you say, that led you, do you think, to, to a copywriting career? Yes, I remember I took the copywriting courses specifically. Like we didn't have to take those. I could have taken, I don't even remember what the alternative was, but I remember taking that course and thinking, this is really going to help me with my songwriting skills <laughs> because um, it's that whole thing of having one idea that you're trying to communicate. It almost has to be a camp- campaignable idea in a song because you have to make it go for three. You have to express it three different ways for each of the verses. You have to set up this tension in the story and then resolve it like there are just so many um commonalities between a song and an ad yeah I do remember thinking like this is really going to help me write better songs (laughs) yeah well no of course it would of course it would so do you still write songs do you still sing and can we hear you sing not now I don't want to put you on the spot necessarily but is there anywhere we can link to in this episode so we can hear you sing no I haven't I haven't sung oh in public I, my kids tell me to shut up I'm like I used to get paid <laughs> people used to pay just to hear me sing jeez anyway um yeah no I don't have anything out there at the moment I'm sorry to say I would love to do it in the future though so you never know it's just reminded me of that lovely I mean it gets shared quite widely nowadays but I remember we first stumbling upon it and we blogged about it on the gasp site about 10 years ago that lovely piece from Gary is it Gary Provost when the writing sings and that kind of melody that you find in, in, in writing and words. Yeah, I haven't, I'll have to look that up. It's, it starts, this sentence has five words. Oh, of course. I just didn't know it by name. Yes, I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's wonderful. So given that there was some, maybe not full intention, but there was some intention to be a musician, do you think there is um, an overlap there that should be maybe uh, more kind of exploited by by people in Uh, music like writing great copy by studying songwriting there must be so many similarities albeit perhaps one is more artistic than the other although maybe that's not even true I think it hones your metaphor writing abilities the the most because you you do use that when you're you're doing the artistic kind of writing and I think I get I get a little bit annoyed sometimes like people people talk about the fact that copywriting isn't creative and it's like well Yes, it needs to be clear over clever, but you don't have to choose. Like, I get what they're saying. You don't want to lose the message in a creative turn of phrase, but someone who's really good at it can definitely do both at the same time. And I think songwriting, the metaphors that you learn to put together, and they need to be original too. Like, everyone gets sick of hearing the same, you know, lines or the same metaphors in in music. You, you can't beat them too much to, to death. And I think you know, poetry and stuff, we're really, I've, I've been liking a lot of poetry on Twitter lately. And I think the modern poetry and some songwriting, they have this ability to use quite um, fearless language. And that's something I talk about an awful lot um, in terms of writing. And I'm not sure I always explain what I mean by that, but it's, it's using those really ugly words sometimes or ugly imagery or even just it doesn't have to be ugly but just really putting it out there in these really simple terms that people can't look away from and it can be quite shocking sometimes but in a good way it's something I love about Joni Mitchell's lyrics particularly oh and and Paul Simon too actually I mean who else can get away with putting you think about Graceland lyrics especially something like you know call me owl and he's got all these crazy words in there. You think, who else could put that in a song like it, and get away with it? It's just, you know, 
marked all. But um, so yeah, short. Long story short, it's it's the metaphor writing abilities, and um, I think Ian Pritchard brought this up when I was having a chat with him. He, he the the way that um, I wrote about in that article, Pat Patterson in his How to Write Better Lyrics book talks about writing in the key of an idea. So Ian sort of made a link between that and category entry points. And I was that kind of blew my mind because I thought that's actually a really great way for a copywriter to start um, coming up with ideas because if you start with that category, category entry point of what situation is someone in when they start to think about I need to find a solution for this problem and then you start there, that's like a really good place to start writing in the key of blah, you know, like it's just it's so obvious when he pointed out, I was like, I can't believe I didn't think of that. <laughs> Damn you, Ian, for being so bloody clever. Brilliant, brilliant guy. I did his um, Back to Basic strategy course actually last year. Oh, yeah, let's, let's give that a plug. How do you find it? Oh, my gosh. I was in the pilot group and he gave us, like, if, you, if all he did was pass you the reading material, that alone would have been amazing. But then he just kind of, like, obviously, I'm not a strategist. I do find strategy really important. Um, I, I, I refuse to use the word strategist as such because I know that's a role in an ad agency. It means something in this industry. I wouldn't dare call myself that. But I feel a bit more confident now that he's taken us back right back to the beginning, helped us fill in any gaps, and then just elevated the, the whole thing off to another level. Like, his knowledge is insane. The way he delivers it is so clear. I just found it really, really valuable. I would honestly say, you know, if anyone has space in their um, professional development for, for their teams in terms of their strategists or their copywriters or, you know, honestly anyone within their teams, like they get so much out of it. It's, it's a great course. Yeah, it, it is. Um, I, I don't doubt. That. I haven't done the course myself, but I, I'm not surprised to hear that. And I very recently recommended his shot by both sides to a client. And I think very early on in the book, they made a comment along the lines of, wow, he's overwhelmingly clever, isn't he? Yeah, that's, <laughs> so, yes. that's bang on. He's overwhelmingly clever. Yes. Yes, he is. You touched on you touched on strategy there, and I think it's I think it's nice to hear you say you're not going to claim to be a strategist because that kind of exists in its own right, and you're not necessarily claiming that. But you do call yourself a stubbornly strategy first copywriter. So is that why you call yourself that stubbornly? Yes, and I think I'm I mean that because too the way I work with clients typically I don't. I work directly with them as a freelancer. So there's being into B2B as well. Often the only marketing strategy they have is their content calendar. And the only marketing person they have is the office manager who manage, who basically manages that content calendar. So there's really no, there's no one driving that bus. So I eventually had to just accept, okay, I'm going to have to step up into that role. And it's not like I don't have the skill to do that you know, to the degree that's required for what I do. I mean, I've got the marketing background. I've, I'm more than curious enough to kind of, you know, do that kind of digging. I, I don't, I'm, I think I wrote a piece earlier, very early on in my LinkedIn posting career about how I'm no longer taking orders in my copywriting um, business. And what I meant by that is no more people rocking up and wanting to order, you know, 10 blogs with a, with a side of social. It's not, it, this ain't Burger King, Um 
because so often that's not going to help people reach their business goals. They really need something else entirely. And really it becomes about asking the right questions and being prepared to kind of push back and say, look, I don't actually think that this is what you need. You need something completely different. So I I always insist that they go back to actually at the very bare minimum knowing why they're doing what they've asked me to do. And that's like a bare minimum thing. I really prefer them to have... um, more than a passing so often they come to me wanting to do things because it's something to do you know and that's just not a good reason to to pay someone to do something and I know I probably do myself out of out of the out of money sometimes but I'd rather do that than give yourself a bad name by keep writing things for people that don't work and that's none of us a service you know no, that's really reassuring to hear because we often say something similar. I, I don't doubt I'd be a far richer man if I said yes more to certain breeds, but I think it's that want to kind of, I don't know if interrogate is the right word and maybe that sounds a bit too ruthless, but understanding why um, this brief has been written and what the overall objective is, is, so, is fundamentally important, isn't it? It is, yeah. And just making sure too that something actually has an idea behind it because I think a lot of the time um, a lot of uh, content gets written by basically you get told a topic and then you go out and see what everyone else has written and you try and rewrite it so that's in air quotes original and um, that's kind of what I mean when I say um, on my website you know you can outspend or outsmart I mean if you're the category leader you can just keep churning out that that branded content and it's you're, you're the one putting out mountains of it it's as good as an ad you know people keep seeing your brand everywhere talking about this thing but if you can't afford to buy the space to be the one doing that the most you're just shouting into the void or rather shouting under a you know pile of mattresses so it and just really wanting people to try and consider some of the other things that are out there because there are other options other than pushing out things that no one wants to read (laughs) yeah yeah i couldn't agree more I actually had hoped by now that kind of that practice would have at least slowed, if not stopped completely. But I suppose that's a a foolish assumption that I had. Yeah, it's probably the size of the companies too. Like as a freelancer, I work with much smaller companies than I might through, say, Kingswood and Palmerston. It just depends. Like they just don't have the budget to spend on things like advertising, or at least you can't convince them to make the investment. So they, they default to the organic social blog posts sort of model and yeah it's very hard to I mean we've taught people that the media is free and then they're very very reticent to invest in anything why would you pay a lot of money to to put something out there when it's meant to be free you know it's just we've really trained people to to think that way which is a shame but I also think that it's, it's I suppose it's human nature isn't it the same with any type of risk you've got that natural risk aversion and doing something that doesn't require fees is much easier to say yes to, I suppose. Feels less risky, but I don't know. I've got my own opinions on how much uh, risk you're taking when you go down that route. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> we've got so many listener questions coming up, by the way. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, 
I want to talk very much about Kingswood and, and Palmerston before we move on to there, but just mindful, we've got a huge list here and I have promised everyone we will ask these questions. So before we go, we do move there, what inspired you to, to found Kingswood and Palmerston? Because that's something you're doing now with um, with David Moore, with Elroy the Cat. We interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles, at gasp.agency. Only last week, some pod-listing companies did just that, calling for guidance on research and brand positioning. But we're definitely not asking you to do that. Anyway, back to the show. The story starts, she said with glee, with a wizard chimpanzee. Oh, the beautifully voiced Gem reading Gas book. Adele writes an ad there, but not what we're after. Hang on. Elroy the cat. That's it. There we go. Um, yeah, we met on Twitter during the pandemic, like during that first shutdown period, and it was like summer camp on Twitter. Like everyone was just really letting everybody else into their into their worlds and being quite vulnerable and. We connected over music and writing and advertising, of course, because they're the three things we're both really into. And um, him being a career ad man, so he's been everything from a copywriter to creative director all the way up to agency president. So yeah, amazing mentor in in my life and um, over the last couple of years. And then we just kind of realised we had this the same philosophy around the kind of work we wanted to create and the way we worked and... Um, both had this same B2B background and passion for the fact that that could be so much better than it is um, and that we could have such an impact. So we just pulled our creative resources and we tried a whole bunch of stuff um, to try and work together and then over time came up with this this idea of having a B2B thing. We're not going to try and be their agency of record. Um, we're just going to go in, solve one that that important but not urgent stone in issue marketing problem and get out of there basically they get to take the credit for the whole thing and then we realized too because he had this baby of ads for ad advertising agencies and he's been plugging at that for ages now and he's kind of LinkedIn famous for it we realized well that still fits with our mission because agencies are of course um, b2b businesses also and a lot of their objections to promoting themselves are actually quite similar to any B2B um, in saying things like the the work speaks for itself. You know, that's that's very much similar to the product-led um, B2B uh, sensibility. And then they also get stumped on the media issue the same way that, you know, where would I place an ad, same objection. And then they always say things like I don't, that I'm a relationship business or what have you. But our argument is, of course, like if you believe in advertising, surely you need to be living that as much as as you talk about it. But it just seems to be something people have stopped doing. I mean, it used to be, as you see from what David posts relentlessly on LinkedIn, there are so many examples in the past of these brilliant ads people would put out. And it meant that, you know, your mum knew when you got a got a job at Ogilvy or something like that, that was a big deal. It was the sort of thing they, your parents would ring up and brag to their friends about. If you got a job at most advertising agencies now, people would be like, oh, that's nice. Because people just didn't, they don't have any idea, you know. And um, I, I think we've lost sight of what that means for the industry. 
I'm going to go back to how you articulated what um, Kingswood and Palmerston is, because I, I, I really, I really do admire it, and I really do admire the way that you can so succinctly focus on something. Um, but before I do, can um, can I just ask, do you have a favourite ad for ad agencies that's been shared, as you say, relentlessly by David over the last few years? My favourite one actually isn't one that he shared because I think it was actually a what well, must have been a video, and um, it's a it's a bit blue in a way, but I just loved I loved the thought behind it. So like a shot of a guy pulling up in a car or something but the line is this is the important bit we won't put our prostitutes on your as, as a line on your bill like it's like we, we pay for our own <laughs> prostitutes <laughs> it's like okay like I think that's you know it doesn't really work in today's world but you gotta love that they really thought of it reminds me and he might not appreciate me saying it but you know the guy that wrote Junior and he talks about in his book how he advertised himself by saying he doesn't smell. And it's like, well, none of your other candidates have, like they may well not smell, but they haven't said so. So that is a distinctive um, thing that I'm telling people about myself. It's like, okay, I can respect that. But, yeah, he hasn't, he hasn't and he probably won't share that one on LinkedIn. But um, but we can link to it in the show notes. I definitely love that one. I just, I was, yeah, poof. <laughs> I love the Young and Rubicum, This is a Backbone. I think that would have been the second one, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's just it's just one of those ads that's just so brutally simple and brilliant. And um, I shared it recently, funny enough, uh, with a client of ours who was you know similarly waxing lyrical about it because it's, yeah, no, it's, it is wonderful. Um, and then going back to Kingswood and Palmerston, there's a line here. I didn't write this. I wish I had. I assume you wrote this. We're just a couple of B2B creative marketing consultants looking for trouble. Yours, not ours. Yep. I love that line. It's so good. You know, when you read copy and just think, fuck, I wish I'd written that. <laughs> so good. Thank you very much. Yeah, we. it was funny because we, we both wrote bits of that website. And what we're both um, really proud of is that you really can't tell who wrote what. And we've gotten to a spot where we really don't remember. So I think that that really speaks to the fact that I think we have created a tone of voice that we can both live out. You know, we sort of share the responsibility of writing the ads that get posted on LinkedIn as well. So, Oh, no, it's great. It's absolutely brilliant. And do you find that whilst how you define yourselves is, is rightly very succinct, it's still, because it's focused on, you know, the problem that the client is having, does that then still lead to lots of variety because clients could have all sorts of issues that I think an agency or creative partnership could come and help at least diagnose and most likely solve? Yeah, I mean, that really came from that insight that, you know, any client that um, David or myself has ever worked with, their marketing team has always had a problem that, you know, even their agency of record might have had a go at. And it could just be that all it takes is somebody who has absolutely no um, you know, they're not knees deep in the whole thing. They're not too close to it. They can take that outside of you. And it just suddenly, maybe you're trying to solve the wrong problem. Maybe maybe it's that you really need to redefine the problem and you just haven't been able to do that. So I think it does lend itself. It could be anything. It could be, I can't even think of, <laughs> my mind's gone black. I can't think of a bunch of examples, but it really could be. But it, but it, could, be, it could be internal, presumably, like internal comms issues as well as external facing, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely true. And that does give us that variety. You don't get bored. 
Yeah, well, no, no, exactly that. And also, I think it keeps you sharp, doesn't it? When you when you when you're not just doing this, trying to solve the same problem, just albeit in a different industry, perhaps it keeps you nimble and. and... Yeah, yeah. We didn't want to be a consultancy where we had one one slide deck that we just rolled out everywhere and just kept, you know, doing the this web. Yeah, this wasn't what we wanted to do. So, I think this this model allows us to to not do that, which is an added bonus. And just quickly, why why do you think agencies aren't putting their money where their mouth is in terms of doing more to advertise themselves? Is it because the money isn't there like it used to be? Oh well, they do. Yeah, they do have really ridiculously skinny margins, and and in in a way, that's why we say you know it costs you double to take on the work of doing it yourself because every billable hour you put into advert- writing your own ads, you know that's an hour you could have been billing out to a client. So that's one of our one of our sales pitch points, but. Um, at the end of the day, I honestly think it's the they're too close to it. Um, they really don't know what to say about themselves um, because it's really hard to. I mean, any any copywriter who's written their own website knows it takes you, you you skillfully avoid it for ages because you just sort of don't know what to say, um, and you're worried like any like any business you're worried you're going to alienate potential customers, and when when you're operating on those skinny margins, you don't want to turn work away. But like we always tell our, our clients, you know, you can you can put you can put a um, a flag out saying like this is what we do. It doesn't mean that other people won't come to your door because they like the cut of your jib. You know, they'll you'll still get all kinds of people coming to you, but you can still put it out there. And you know, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. This is who we serve, and do it in a really interesting way. But um, I, I I think too like maybe it's just this slight worry about the work sucking as well and there's no difficult client to hide behind like you can't say oh you know we had this great idea and it got diluted by you know by politics and whatnot. like you have to just stand there and own it and I think that's that's difficult no you can't argue with it. it's just it's just difficult yeah yeah no that's very well said right then should we do our listener questions I lied actually we've got five but I'm going to um Two have come from from David, so I'm going to only allow him one, and I'm yet to decide which one that is. So, asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. Uh, Let's start with alumni and and really good friend of the show, John Lyons, uh, who asks, are there any contemporary songwriters that you think would make a good copywriter? (laughs) Yes. Now, I I was thinking about this just the other day, actually. It's funny. And I'd have to say it would be probably, I'm not even into this genre of music, but it would be rap and hip-hop artists. And the reason I say that is because they're the only ones who still have their fight face on. So you think back to your Joanies, your Bob Dylans, Joan Baez, they, they, they had something they were standing for. And a lot of music now is kind of just, I don't know, it's just, guff but but rap music there's still like like every line is like an idea 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 and that reminds me of something I heard Paul Simon say once which is that when he moved from writing his troubadour type um, story-led songs to more of his world music that's when the music is defined by the beat not by what he writes so he had to start writing like that it was just like these rapid fire ideas and that's where it's quite similar to the rap I am not familiar with any artists. I have to say I, I, I'm probably revealing myself as a complete noob or idiot I'm in terms of like rap music, but I actually really like Eminem. I don't know where he sits in like the, 
hierarchy of cool. But um, what I love okay. about yeah, exactly. Um, I love, like he once said, um, like people say to me, oh, you know, these words don't rhyme or whatever. He's like, but he finds a way to bend the rhythm or push something out to kind of make it happen. And it's just that harness, harnessing of rhythm. It, it reminds me of Frank Sinatra actually because sometimes when he would sing, he would push out a phrase or he'd push out a note so far and be like, oh, my God, is he going to make it? And he always did. Like it was kind of like this tension in, in listening to the music. So, yeah, I, I, I think that's probably um, my first answer. And then also Sean Rowe is another guy that he's not well known, but he sings this song at the end of The Accountant, which was a movie I barely put up with. But um, right at the end there was this song that just punched me in the guts and it's not coming to me right now. But um, the lyrics to that are gorgeous, like really Dylan-esque. So I think he... He's really special. Um, leave something behind. There you go. That's the song. Okay. Nice. We'll link to that too. Well, funny enough, John actually asked this on LinkedIn and he and I both kind of had a bit of a debate about what our answers would be. And we, we went exactly to that same genre. And John believes Naz is the correct answer, but I wholeheartedly agree it's Method Man. Okay. I've, I've had a conversation recently, actually, with a guy called Soul about Wu Tang Clan, which sounds ridiculous as a middle-aged white guy. But I remember, I remember Thirty Six Chambers when it came out. I was about twelve, I think, at the time, and it just blew my mind. Like the lyrics and the writing were just, just utterly insane. And Method Man, especially, from is it, it, definitely worth looking into. I will. I will look him or them or whoever they are up. Even if you don't listen to the music or enjoy the music, if you just look up the lyrics, it's just the the way that, like you said, with Eminem, who is also an incredibly talented writer, the way that they can break structure and stretch syllables and, and, and make things fit that, uh, as you were saying, words might not rhyme, but the way that it's broken down and delivered is just incredible. You have to admire that, even if you're not a fan. Yes. Uh, do, you, do you like um, Rodriguez at all? He's, he's, he's probably best known for the Search for Sugar Man documentary. Oh, that's one I've been meaning to. Yeah, I don't know, but I, I've been meaning to watch that. So I'll have to. It's worth looking into, but I, th- I think his lyrics are incredible too. He's more, more folk, folk-like in terms of, um, I, th- I think he gets compared to, to Bob Dylan. I'll definitely like it then. So, yeah, yeah no, he's, he's, he's remarkable. Um, cool. Well, sticking with music then louis lucente lucente i've just murdered your surname i'm really sorry i should have just said louis would you rather sing a duet with paul simon or Joni mitchell i think i know the answer oh i thought i knew the answer too and then i started thinking about it <laughs> well i feel like maybe paul simon only because my voice is really similar to Joni mitchell's and i feel like it just wouldn't you wouldn't yeah I feel like it would be a better contrast to sing with Paul Simon. Plus, I just love his songs. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, both of them have come up already. Um, so that's a, it's a very good question. Um, and then Kate Taylor, who's a freelance writer, she's roped me in too on this one. And I can go first or second, depending on uh, your choice. Talking of robots from the future, I don't remember when we were talking of robots from the future, but this is maybe we were on LinkedIn. What are Carolyn and your thoughts on AI copywriting? Robocopy, dead or alive, it's coming for our jobs, question mark. I have to say I ain't bothered because I feel like a bot will probably, it could pick up where and don't hate me 
content writers because I know you're not a, a homogenous species, but they could pick up the I string words together, I string sentences together coherently um, sort of jobs. And, but they can't account for the randomness of human beings and our emotions and brilliant ideas. Like that's, they, they can definitely take over the content mill jobs. No worries. I, they can have those. I'm, I'm not bothered. Um, I'll be over here writing stuff for people who want the advantage of distinctiveness and cut through. Yeah, well said. Well, that's kind of my answer, but I wouldn't have delivered it as well or articulately. Just imagine a clunkier one. It reminds me a bit of actually of, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a remark, and I've definitely referenced it before, that I remember Tom Goodwin giving to someone on uh, LinkedIn. And it, it was quite ruthless, this reply, and yet it was also quite brilliant. And I think the question was something like, oh, Christ, what was it? I'm doing, I'm doing a promotional piece of uh, marketing. What's the, what was it? What's the, what are the best words? Or what are, it, was, it was something, it was just a ludicrous question. And Tom's reply was, I'm writing a song. What's the best notes? Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, and, and, and AI algorithms are mind-blowingly advanced. And I accept mm. that I'm probably trying to, I'm probably going to have to, you know, trivialize it slightly to make this point. But I can't help but think that the algorithms will be based on, as you said, how to structure sentences and yeah. grammatical rules and so on and so forth. And, and, and almost go de- fall into that kind of efficiency of words over effectiveness of words type trap. Yeah. And I just can't see it being a realistic threat. No. And that's probably, you know, famous last words before the robots kill us all and take over. So who knows? Well, I think if we've gotten to a spot where robots can have better ideas than we can, then, yeah, we're probably stuffed. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. Which which question from David? So your business partner, David Moore, I think he wanted me to ask the second one. Sorry, David, but I think the first one's better. Uh, how about, uh, so he says, do you find writing Aussie English, British English and or American English challenging how do you keep the metaphors idioms and just plain weird quirks straight okay i i i think this is an interesting one because we talk about this a lot so i've grown up in australia absolutely bathed in content from the uk and the us because we only have to have nine percent australian content by law on our on it that's that's the minimum they've set and we really up until quite recently didn't produce all that much of our own so I grew up watching the BB like the ABC which was almost you know 75% BBC shows and um and then later on commercial TV which was just American stuff so that's that's second nature really to me and then switching between voices is is like switching between singing voices I've sung every kind of um music from jazz to pop to choir to you know everything and it it, it's just putting yourself in that in that headspace and really it just comes down to remembering to switch the s's to z's that's the hardest part but and and dropping the u's i'm sticking u's in everything so in the american one he gives me he gives me crap about that all the time he'll laugh at that okay okay um, let's sneak his other one in because I feel bad now. Why do you think so much B2B copy is so poorly and stiffly written? Don't these people read? <laughs> Honestly, I think it comes down to something I referenced earlier, which is I think um, it's the not knowing what to say. So because they spend so much time um, in that space of we're in we're a sales-led business, um, got our quarterly focus on, on sales KPIs, they really just don't 
spend a lot of time thinking about those things that you would do when you're you're investing in brands. So what makes us different? Uh, what do we stand for? They they really have nothing to say. And when you don't have anything to say, say you panic and you start writing, or you look and see what everyone else has said, which is how you come up with you know um, the line I've got on my website, which was meant to be an example of 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 bad B2B copy and I know I don't know off, off the top of my head but you know you start solutionizing things and you know stuff like that it's just it's just things to say you know they they really don't know what they're saying so they just start talking and hope for the best good answer good answers right so the final part of the interview just a lot more questions at you Carolyn um the four pertinent poses and they start with what advice would you give to your younger self i think it would be to play i and, and, you know, stop taking everything so seriously because I, I, I've come to understand that life's honestly a bit of a mess and a bit of a weird experience and play is so important and I think we forget that as we grow up. Um, the way kids create, they really just, my, my kids make like a thousand pictures a day and bits of writing and stuff and they don't care if it's good. I, I remember handing my mum one of those macaroni pictures that you make at kindergarten. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's me saying they just to her. fall off in the first yeah. fall off, don't they, in the first And I actually week. said to her quite famously, oh, you don't need to keep that. And by that I think I meant that the result was not the point. It was just I was just making things happen and marvelling at this ability that, that humans have to make things and just make things happen. And I wish I'd had that in my pocket for the last decade because I really forgot how to be creative for a while and, um, being back on Twitter on, on during the pandemic, I found myself back around advertising people and we talk so much about um, creativity that it just got me back into that headspace. I, I just wish I'd stayed there and grown up in that soil because I feel like it would have served me really well. So, yeah, definitely play more. That would have been it. Um, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? I think um, yesterday I would have said fear because it's the weed um, crowding out creativity in the industry and everyone's, you know, clients are too scared to do anything um, in case it doesn't work. Agency is scared to lose clients. CMOs are scared to get chucked out of their jobs. And, you know, no one wins when fears the stadium we're playing on. But I think today I got rather upset because I saw advertising people referred to as advertising bunnies and you know who are in charge of the sexy stuff and I my, that really got my blood up I hope I wasn't too rude in the tweet that I replied on to that guy on but um I'm just really tired of um you know and, and this isn't everyone um but it, there's a tendency amongst marketers to look down on advertising and say oh they only deal with one tiny piece of one p and it's like yeah okay that makes us experts you know what what other industry do we look down on people who are experts in a narrow field? You know, this is, that really got my got my blood up. So I'll try not to get too riled up over it. But yeah, I think that's probably one thing I think we could definitely just put out with the next um, garbage collection. Thanks. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well said. I don't think it helps. It doesn't really help the. Um, I'm sure there's a you know there's a, a crisis, confidence crisis in the industry at the moment, and that kind of perception of, of people and their roles and what they actually do is, is, all, is all kind of wrapped up in that yeah the fear thing feeds into everything for sure it's just it's bad business yeah completely number three are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners oh yes okay anything by david sidaris and you can start with the santaland diaries which i can actually give you a link for so 
can pop that um, in the show notes. But um, I would really recommend people listen, if they can, um, to an audiobook of it because there's a performative element to his writing and no one can read it like he does. So anything by David Sedaris is amazing. Um, anything by Margaret Atwood, of course, and I encourage people to go beyond The Handmaid's Tale because she has written many, many other things. And the reason for that being is that I, she actually, she's the daughter of a, of a scientist. I believe her dad was an entomologist. I think that explains the way she holds the world at an arm's length and takes almost an anthropological um, view of her writing. So she tends to like to put humans in situations and put pressure on them and see how they behave. And I love that about her writing because, and, and, you know, so much of the time now we look back on things she's written even in the 60s and 70s and go, oh, my gosh, she had time travel or something. But I think when you're someone who just understands human behaviour, you put a certain situation in front of them, you can kind of predict what they're going to do. So I feel like that's a behavioural psychology with a spoonful of sugar. So definitely worth um, reading her stuff. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, about Margaret Atwood. I mean, even, even if we do just look at Handmaid's Town and some of the you know monstrous decisions that are happening in the US at the moment, the um, parallels are, are, are quite frightening. They are frightening, yeah. And then there's, um, I've got a couple more if we've got time. But um, Yes, please. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul Simon Audiobiography by Malcolm Gladwell, whatever we think. I, I quite like Malcolm Gladwell. He gets a lot of shade. But this particular book was, um, it, it was less about his little um, views on things and more about Paul Simon. So I think anyone would like it. But it's a very cool concept having an audio biography like that as well because you can only get it as an audio book because so much of the time it's Paul playing things and singing them in real time to demonstrate what they're talking about. So you can't really read it. But, yeah, that's that's an amazing book to listen to, just like light bulbs going off in your head every two seconds, just incredible stuff. And then the last one I'd probably say is Pat Patterson's How to Write Better Lyrics because I think it's great to look outside your own discipline for lessons in how to how to do your job better and that's a great one for copywriters it's just a different way of thinking about ways to connect ideas and it's just generally a good book well we'll link to all of those I'm going to link to junior as well because you mentioned that earlier and I think that's well worth um, plugging um, we always dedicate every episode to someone Carolyn and we bestow or hospital pass that honor depending on your view to our guest who has to give the reason why so would you kindly dedicate this episode yeah, well, unofficially, I feel like I've already dedicated it to David Moore as my business partner, and he's had an enormous impact on my career over the past um, couple of years. Um, and the benefit of that can't be overstated. And in, but in a um, nice full circle kind of a way, he's literally the last person I've met in advertising because I met him really recently. I travelled to the US and actually met him. Um, so he's, he's the last person I met who worked in advertising, the very first person. I ever met in advertising was my mum so um she she passed away when I was in my mid-teens but just before um she did she actually one of the last things she said to me was that she thought I would enjoy working in advertising and maybe as a copywriter so this whole thing was kind of her idea that's fantastic so she actually worked for Philip Adams who was a um big name in Australian advertising he was the Adams in Monaghan Damon and Adams which won't mean anything to anyone <laughs> anymore, but but he, they were the agency that came up with Life Be In It and the Slip Slop Slap campaigns, which will mean a lot to anybody from where I'm from. So 
um, yeah, she had a pretty good spell with them. Oh, fantastic. Well, well, let's link to those as well, those campaigns. I'm sure they'll be... Um... Yeah, they're very brilliant and well-known. Yeah, very good stuff. And was that was that in, in Melbourne? Yes, yes, that was Melbourne, yeah. Fantastic. Well, th- this episode is really proudly dedicated to your mum. Yeah, yeah. Her name was Diane. There you go. <laughs> Diane, to, to Diane. Um, so as a final call to action, everything we've discussed links to all of the books, to Kingswood and Palmerston, ads for ad agencies. Um, I'll link to Ian Pritchard's course that we plugged earlier, if that's okay with you too, Carolyn. But how else can our listeners get more Carolyn Barkley? Yeah, so I'm on, on the Twitters as at, at yes, no, um, which was the name of my very first ever blog <laughs> that is now defunct. Um, and, uh, you can see them on LinkedIn. Uh, you can follow, definitely follow us on Kingswood and Palmerston and there we're on LinkedIn and Twitter under that moniker. Um, I've got my website, Carolyn Watts, uh, Carolyn, sorry, that's my maiden name, Carolyn Barclay, copywriter. Um, yeah, I think that takes care of it. Yeah, okay, cool. Well, we'll make sure all of those links, including your website, are included in the show notes. Thank you very much. This has been um, this has been excellent, Carolyn. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, no, thank you for having me. It's so kind of you. Uh, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed the episode, please do share and review the pod. Keep the questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or email hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try.